Hello, my name is Kate Chesterman. I'm a GP in South Norfolk and I also co-host the GP Notebook Education Study Groups. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcasts, where we present bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can follow me on Twitter, at ChestermanKate, for more information about the new podcasts and study groups as they become available. Now for the next few episodes of the podcast, we've got something a little different for you. In May 2022, as part of something we're calling Chronic Conditions Month, there is a series of seven webinars with live Q&A sessions, each focusing on a different long-term condition. The webinars, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to provide wide-ranging clinical education programme, focusing not only on the diagnosis and management of different chronic conditions, but also on the strategies required to address the complex and challenging interplay between coexisting morbidities. Healthcare professionals in the UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chroniconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining. And to accompany the webinars, the Chronic Conditions faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which they provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So without further delay, please enjoy the fourth in this series of special episodes. This one is brought to you by Dr Patrick Holmes and Dr Yasser Javed, who are talking about chronic kidney disease. Hello, I'm Yasser Javed, a GP with specialist interest in cardiology in Northampton, and it's a huge pleasure to be joined by a very dynamic and charismatic primary care colleague, Patrick Holmes, a GP with specialist interest in diabetes based in Darlington. Uh, Welcome to our podcast, which comes to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month 2022, which is taking place throughout May, uh, and it includes a whole array of interactive and informative webinars designed to address the primary care challenges of diagnosing and managing chronic conditions across a range of specialties. Today in this podcast, we're going to try and demystify the kidneys from a primary care perspective, and in particular, how to assess and manage chronic kidney disease, a chronic condition that often doesn't get the priority it deserves, but has now become a hot topic in the new and fast-evolving cardio-renal metabolic world. So Patrick, these two bean-shaped organs, which do look very understated, sitting just below the ribcage on either side of the spine, they don't tend to receive the same level of attention or limelight as some of the other, uh, shall we say, more glamorous organs like the beating heart or the brain. But the reality is the kidneys... Uh, arguably influence a much broader array of bodily systems. Uh, And in particular, Patrick, CKD is now considered a significant and independent cardiovascular risk factor, so much so that, believe it or not, even cardiologists are beginning to assess kidney function and in particular hunt for albuminuria as a way of risk stratifying patients for cardiovascular disease. Patrick, is that how we should be thinking of chronic kidney disease increasingly? Absolutely. I mean, the the kidneys uh, do far more than just filter the blood and produce urine. Although if you actually ask the poor old general public, apparently uh, in a Think Kidney campaign, only 51% of the general public actually uh, recognise the kidneys as the organ that produces urine. So it shows that the issue of knowledge about the kidney is is not great, not only in, uh, in 
in medicine, I would say, but also in the general public. But but absolutely, the role of, of kidneys and the associations with chronic kidney disease and particularly cardiovascular mortality and, and cardiovascular cardiovascular morbidity is is really very strong. Um, yeah, and I think the... It, but, you know, I mean, I first came on this myself, I, I suppose, approaching this from a, from, a, from a GP with a special interest in diabetes because it was an important part of our, our quaff uh, a few years back to be measuring uh, albuminuria. And I, I wonder, well, what was the value of this? We were forever doing it. And, 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 and it wasn't always being recorded that well. It was always something we struggled with. So, so that led me to learn more and more about the kidneys and and it's it's fascinating really the uh, the role and the importance which i would say is 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 very high and should be very high in our thinking well, we'll a fantastic response there patrick we'll tease out many of these uh, those issues that you've uh, alluded to but patrick we know that diabetes is the leading cause of sort of driving patients to dialysis and end-stage renal disease is it true patrick that the cardiovascular risk of having diabetic kidney disease is so great that most patients with it will sadly not live long enough to even go on to dialysis as they succumb to their premature cardiovascular disease. Is the risk really that high? It really is that high. If you look at what uh, people die of when they do have uh, diabetic kidney disease, you're looking at about 50% of those will die from cardiovascular disease. Maybe about a third will die of actually infections. That's the next uh, common one. And it's only about 10% who will actually go on to die of end-stage renal disease. Fantastic. Okay, so Patrick, many colleagues uh, in primary care rely on a falling EGFR to identify chronic kidney disease. You know, once that EGFR drops below 60 i mean i've i've been to a recent uh, talk by an eminent nephrologist who says you've already lost uh, probably most of your nephrons at that stage and and therefore the patient has quite advanced uh, chronic kidney disease in a patient with diabetes in particular how important is it to get those acrs done at least uh, annually as as a sort of early marker for chronic kidney disease well, I think you've, you've uh, already given us the answer. It's really important, isn't it? I mean, it, we, it, the, because of the hyperfiltering that goes on with, in, in, a, in someone with diabetes, we, we, it artificially elevates actually their level of kidney function. So you're absolutely right. I've heard that you know, about a, a third of their kidney function or even as low as 25% of their kidney function is, is left once they hit that EGFR of 60. So it's, it's important if we're trying to prevent um, this uh, disease. We've, we've said there's this strong association Association with cardiovascular disease. In fact, most of the most of the um, cardiovascular burden of diabetes is in people with diabetic kidney disease. So if we can prevent it in the first place and ideally treat that their broader risk and not just think of the kidneys, but think of the heart and the rest of their body, then that's the real way for us to manage this. It's you know, prevention is better than cure, as we all know. So Patrick, that uh, that first detection of a of a raised ACR. Is that often the first indication of significant underlying diabetic kidney disease? How, I mean, can that precede, uh, from what you're suggesting, uh, a lowering of your EGFR by many, many years? 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, the, the first sign for most people with diabetes of, of problems going wrong with their kidney is that indeed that, that elevation of protein in the urine. So their urinary ACR going up uh, and being persistently elevated. So, so yeah, they're, they're the, that's what we should be doing, getting there earlier and, and in, particularly with the new therapies, which I'm sure at some point we'll, we'll come on to talk about and the evidence which is following them. Um, and that's, it's, you know, it's important we get, we get in there, as I say, early. This is about prevention. So Patrick, why on earth was this uh, such important diagnostic test sort of removed from quaff? It does uh, it does um, such a simple test to do. I mean, uh, any thoughts on that? Is there any any uh, thoughts as to whether it might even be put back into quaff for instance? Cuz I, I know that the, the, it's dropped off quite sharply, hasn't it in terms of uptake? Yeah, well it, it, it's it's unfortunate. I think that Problem here is politics. As always, the the thing which frustrates me most in life is politics because because it doesn't apply logic doesn't apply there. Remember the whole point of the quality outcome framework, at least from the BMA, uh, uh, was concerned in our negotiators was this was about uh, getting some income into primary care and 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 because urinary ACR was actually one of the worst ones as, uh, for us to hit. It, that was one of the ones we we were quite keen to lose apparently as negotiators, but it seems somewhat foolish now, particularly uh, as, you know, when I'm looking at, at uh, therapies, uh, particularly to treat diabetes and increasingly beyond, um, um, I'm, I'm looking at what that urinary ACR says. And it's a fantastic biomarker to identify who, who we really need to be focusing our time and effort at this time of population health we're supposedly uh, meant to be doing. So, Patrick, let's try and explore some of the barriers, perhaps, uh, to sort of in routine clinical practice. How important in your opinion, is it for the urine to be an early morning sample? I mean, if we've got a patient in in the surgery with diabetes and we've noticed they haven't had an ACR done for ages, but it's an afternoon, is it still worth getting that urine off before they leave the surgery? Absolutely. And the NICE guidance has, has changed to confirm this. So, yes, I mean, if, if, if we, it may be too dilute, in which case you would need to repeat it, but, but, it's, uh, but it's better to get that urine off because, as you said, every, we've got to make every, every contact count. Okay, and any other common etiologies for chronic kidney disease? We've talked about diabetes, but when, for instance, in a diabetic patient, should we be considering a potential other cause for someone's deteriorating renal function? Any tips on that? Well, I think we've got to got to think of, as you say, of all the common, all the causes. So obviously, some simple things. If you're dipsticking the urine, um, do look for blood, and if there's blood there, then I think think different um you know there, there may be other forms of inflammation going on if the the degree of proteinuria is 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 very high again there are other causes and that's when you start phoning a friend um but also think of um uh, you know kidney stones uh, of uh, uh, benign prostatic hyperplasia or for that matter you know any prostatic disease that can often be a, a cause for declining kidney function and, and and recurrent urine infection so there's there's lots of causes particularly in in older people i would say and i guess with as with most areas of medicine it's it's not just the absolute number that's important but also look at the trend and have a low threshold for, for, as you say, getting some advice and guidance. So, Patrick, let's focus on what I think uh, are the most, uh, arguably the most exciting class of drug therapy in medicine at the moment, certainly the most exciting class in diabetes and cardiology. But I've noticed the nephrologists, traditionally very stoic sort of individuals, are now also getting very excited about the SGLT2 inhibitors. Can you throw some light on why? Well, 
I suppose if we go back to um, because they protect your kidneys, I suppose is the is the is the simple message. But we've we've seen evidence of that right back when we started getting the first cardiovascular outcome data for SGLT2 inhibitors. Really, when they were being used at that time purely for the treatment of of, of diabetes, you know, Empereg. I think there was uh, there was clear evidence there. And uh, over the time, which is built both in the in the studies in all the studies we've seen for. Um, treatment of type 2 diabetes, but also in, in, in when we're treating people with heart failure in these clinical studies, um, we can see that things like acute kidney injury have, have been reduced, as well as this decline in kidney function. And of course, you've already said what's what we need to be focusing on with, with people with chronic kidney disease, and that's cardiovascular risk. And these drugs are excellent uh, um, reducers of car- adverse cardiovascular events, So and, and they work very well in people with kidneys. So so, um, uh, with chronic kidney disease, rather. So, so it's it's yeah, it, it fits in, and this is the first new therapy really for the treatment of chronic kidney disease. We now have uh, two clinical studies uh, which have come out. Another one which has just been stopped actually uh, because of uh, overwhelming benefit um, of SGLT2 inhibitors. So we have the Creedence study using flows in, which came out about three years ago now. Uh, a couple of years ago, we got um, DAPA CKD, which looked at people um, not only with type 2 diabetes but without type 2 diabetes and showing the benefit of in that case dabagliflozin so so and and the one which has just been stopped is actually with it's called empikidney and guess what it used empikidney and again people with and without type 2 diabetes so so it's it's the evidence in terms of protection really is quite strong now yeah no, and, and as you say emphasized with or without uh type 2 diabetes and it's quite incredible isn't it Patrick we've gone on a bit of a journey uh, with the SGLT2 inhibitors in respect to renal function dare I say initially many of us were a little bit cautious about using SGLT2 inhibitors and, and wondering whether there's a sort of toxic effect but I mean we've gone full circle now because now they're considered some of the most potent uh, renal protective agents explain to us Patrick this initial sort of reduction in EGFR that you get with an SGLT2 inhibitor that's nothing to worry about is it well I think I think that's generally fair but the the, the way it works is is similar in a sense to an ACE inhibitor at least in in terms of the hemodynamic effect so we know that if the EGFR drop is less than 30%. That's, this is data actually which comes from Credence, which is the vast majority of people. Then we should just be, should we should be happy with this because the reduction in the EGFR is not permanent. It's just purely related to the reduced filtering pressures, which is actually what's partly what's preserving that kidney function. So so we should be comfortable with it because if we withdraw it, yes, the numbers will go up. But what we're doing is is sort of flattening that decline in kidney functioning. And, and again, just mentioning that study. So Credence, what we, what we know is that simply by adding an SGLT2 uh, inhibitor on top of maximum tolerated uh, treatment, in, in this case, uh, maximum tolerated ACE inhibitors or ARBs, um, in 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 this case in type 2 diabetes because it was the Creedence study we were going to buy an extra 17 years one seven years life worth from these kidneys so so it's it's yeah it, it helps people age better i suppose is one simple message i mean that's uh that's a fairly impressive prognostic uh, benefit so look you've talked about the um the guideline uh, sorry the evidence uh, being so robust have these now been reflected uh, in in guidelines so let's let's start off with probably the most uh 
respected guidelines we have in diabetes, the EASD uh, and ADA consensus report. What, what does that what do, what does that particular latest guidance say about uh, what to do in diabetes, uh, type two diabetes complicated by chronic kidney disease? If there's any other evidence of chronic kidney disease, we should be adding this um, treatment at diagnosis, really, um, irrespective of their glucose levels. So they should be offered metformin unless the EGFR is below the threshold you'd be offering at metformin, i.e. 30. Um, but but it would but you'd be offering it alongside uh, uh, that metformin for its renal protection uh, effect, um, and rather than this glucose lowering effect, uh, of course you get more than one thing with uh, an SGLT2 inhibitor, don't you? So did I did I hear that uh, correctly, Patrick? Irrespective of the HbA1c, so even if someone's got a pristine HbA1c, if they if if they comp if their diabetes is complicated by chronic kidney disease, you would be very happy. To, to add this treatment absolutely and that's what the guidelines say and in fact actually you know if we we're going to talk about what nice says that's what nice also yeah, says. let's let's go on to nice yeah yeah well well like nice have have, have uh, brought this in i mean now i mean uh, we've you you're going to be offering an sglt2 inhibitor quite honestly to the vast majority of in lo our local figures 85% of people who are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes would qualify for an SGLT2 inhibitor, mainly actually because of their Q risk, um, which, which obviously is easier to measure. So a Q risk greater than 10%, um, the same threshold for statins, uh, we should be um, adding in SGLT2 inhibitors, again, irrespective of their glucose-lowering uh, 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 level so if the hba1c is fine because you're giving it for the cardio renal protection um and, and anybody with any evidence of um of of kidney disease um with um uh, with a recent nice uh, ta actually with dapagliflozin to reflect the evidence which has come from uh, dapa ckd but there irrespective actually of the albuminuria um they've they've recommended if you've got type 2 diabetes you should and have got evidence of chronic kidney disease and um, then you should um be offered a, uh, a, a in that case dapagliflozin and that is such a great example of how you know things have evolved so dramatically i mean this really is a new era of uh, sort of cardiorenal metabolic collaboration when when looking at our our patients but let's let's move away from the sglt2 inhibitors i mean there are other strategies that we should be routinely adopting uh in primary care for for renal protection i mean the most important thing is clearly to let's identify that uh, uh renal dysfunction uh, much earlier on in the trajectory but you'd mentioned ace inhibitors are they still considered sort of first line treatments uh and if so uh, is there any is it a class effect? Does it matter which one you use? And is it dose dependent? Should we be aiming for good doses of these drugs? Well, I would say the foundation, of course, is excellent um, uh, lifestyle intervention like anything else. So, they, you know, uh, diet, exercise, uh, healthy diet, Mediterranean type diet, exercise is good, smoking cessation and weight management because as, as we say, cardiovascular disease is the is the killer here. So we need to be focused on that. But you're absolutely right. For those um, uh, people with um, uh, hypertension, really, I think we should be looking at RAS blockade and, and dose does. So the, which ones we use, I think I would stick with whatever your favorite one is. Uh, but, but what you do need to be doing is pushing that dose up to the maximum tolerated dose. That's 
you know, and, and again, NICE has been clear on this for quite some time. And it's something I often see in colleagues that started maybe on a small dose of uh, an ACE inhibitor, maybe 10 milligrams of lisinopril or 2.5 milligrams of ramipril. And they just leave it at that because the blood pressure seemed to be okay. So, but no, there, there is clear uh, randomized control evidence that the higher doses protect the kidneys more than lower doses. In fact, I believe that's the very reason why the NICE hypertension guidance has an ACE inhibitor as first line for all diabetic patients, irrespective of age or ethnicity. Um, and then I guess the other thing we probably should talk about is uh, blood pressure is really important, isn't it? I mean, that is a big influencer of the rate of renal decline. I mean, Patrick, I follow, I'm very wedded to the European Society of Cardiology guidelines that for many years now have said, you know, for those type of high risk patients, your default should be, unless you've got a frail patient uh, and you're worried about hypo, you know, postural hypotension, we should be looking to be aggressive at around less than 130 over 80. Would you, would you agree with, with being that aggressive? I would. I mean, as you say, I think it, it, if you've obviously we as GPs, we, we often think of the patient. So um, I think there's there's clear evidence that certainly the lower is better. I think then you've, if you're dealing with yeah issues such as pot falls or postural hypotension, then I think there's then you do need to individualize. But I think in general, I would go if there's evidence of kidney disease, I, I would certainly go with the 13080, um, you know, for those benefits, uh, particularly, as I say, the cardiovascular and renal benefits of getting that lower blood pressure. Absolutely. And the last thing I'm going to weave in is, I think we're a bit too uh, gung-ho sometimes in dishing out or not uh, or recommending anti-inflammatory, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Our nephrologists are always reinforcing to us locally that uh, even a four-day course of ibuprofen can be quite damaging to the kidney. And if you've already got underlying chronic kidney disease, you should be looking to uh, to protect uh, that as much as possible. So maybe just making sure as part of our routine counselling for these patients, reinforcing to them the dangers perhaps of using uh, anti-inflammatory usage. So Patrick, thank you so much uh, for your expert perspective. Incredibly helpful, giving a real spotlight on this possibly previously slightly neglected uh, area of medicine, I would say. Uh, and thank you all uh, in the audience for listening. We hope you, like me, found this podcast helpful. Uh, please make sure to register on the Chronic Conditions website so you can listen to other podcasts in the series and for our interactive webcasts that are going to be brought to you as part of chronic conditions month 2022 and you can sign up at chroniconditions.co.uk.